What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Dylan LeClaire is the senior market analyst at UTXO Management. He also writes a newsletter with Bitcoin Magazine. In this conversation, we talk about Bitcoin, on-chain metrics. We talk about Bitcoin's price, the market structure, and what to expect in the coming weeks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dylan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 Conference. Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artists K-Flay, Mo, Royal, and The Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Again, that's b.tc slash conference to learn more. Ticket prices increase on January 14th. Use promo code POMP for 10% off, and I will see you in Miami. Today's episode is brought to you by Fundrise. You all know I believe that the best investors both understand and seek out extreme asymmetry. Fundrise is here to help you do just that. It's the largest direct-to-investor real estate investment platform out there, giving you the opportunity to achieve upside of an asset class previously reserved for institutions and high net worth individuals. That's right. Fundrise is making high-end private market real estate investing accessible to everyone via an easy-to-use automated platform. It's 1 million users already know that the investment with Fundrise is capable of producing strong appreciation returns and income generation while helping to stabilize a diversified portfolio. That's more important now than ever in our inflationary environment. See for yourself how over 190,000 other investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started with as little as $10. Go to fundrise.com slash pomp today. And for a limited time, you'll get $10 when you place your first investment. Again, that's fundrise.com slash pomp. Go check it out. And when you make your first investment, they'll give you $10 on top of it. Fundrise.com slash pomp. Today's episode is brought to you by Brave. Brave Wallet is the first secure crypto wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. No extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage NFTs, even connect other wallets and dApps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Again, go download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. 
you should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We got a lot to go over today. Let's start with uh, hash rate. Obviously, last year we saw China go ahead and kick out you know 60 plus percent of the hash rate. Hash rate went down more than 50 percent. Uh, it's come roaring back. You've got this chart here uh, around the uh, seven day average and also the 30 day growth. What, what is this showing you and, and why do you think this is so important? Yeah, so started the slide deck off today with just a couple uh, of the kind of the fundamentals. Uh, so obviously, uh, network security hash rate matters uh, a lot for, for the Bitcoin network, uh, but it's something that you might not see when you're just looking at the ticker symbol and the, the price move up and down. So uh, hash rate, we, we like to look at, you know, the seven day average. Some people do, you know, 14 day, two week average, a month average. Uh, but basically because of like the day to day variance of of these block times coming in, um, you know, the moving averages provides a little more signal. So seven day moving average networks above 200 exahash. It's honestly quite historic. Um, just given like the breadth of the drawdown in 2021, uh, you kind of in that in the second pane in the bottom of the chart, we see that 30 day uh, growth. And besides basically that uh, the China event, you see just how the hash rate relentlessly growing. Um, so the fundamentals of Bitcoin have never been stronger. Network security up and to the right. Uh, and it's becoming a lot more competitive to mine Bitcoin, uh, actually, with hash rate rising and the price kind of consolidating. It puts a little bit of uh, compression on some of these minor margins, uh, which is what we've talked about a lot. Some of the publicly traded miners uh, denominating them in, in BTC terms. It gets quite interesting if hash rate continues to kind of hockey stick upwards. Um, and I think that's that'll be the story of the next decade is just hash rate relentlessly uh, bending upwards. A lot of analysts think that 300 exahash is in the future for 2022. Uh, we'll have to see. But uh, a lot of publicly traded miners are you know, are pretty optimistic about that. So uh, definitely an encouraging sign in general, though, uh, of network security. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible to watch just how quickly it uh, kind of uh, came back, how resilient the network's been uh, and continue to hit those all-time highs. Another area of uh, massive growth recently has been the Lightning Network. And every single time I go and I look at these statistics, I'm personally just shocked. And I'm, you know, as bullish as they come, but the growth seems to be even outpacing my expectations. What are you seeing here with the Lightning Network public channel capacity? Yeah. So, I mean, the Lightning Network is not something that gets talked about a lot in crypto spheres. It's kind of just this thing that's that's being worked on under the hood. Uh, and a lot of these like, you know, open source protocols, uh, apps, different, like something like Strike, right? Where it's almost abstracted away where you don't even know you're using Lightning. You're just scanning a QR code. I think that's the future. And what it, what it allows for is this monetary asset to be settled basically instantaneously uh, anywhere in the world. So Jack Mahler is having a talk with the IMF saying, this isn't even about Bitcoin, the asset. This is about Bitcoin, the network, uh, and Lightning, the network, which is a layer layer two on top of, of Bitcoin, just being a superior monetary network compared to anything the world's ever seen. And the reality is that like, almost no one in the world understands that fact yet, uh, that we can settle without, without really any counterparty risk. We can settle this absolutely scarce monetary asset uh, in a bearer type way from peer to peer uh, with no intermediary with uh, no counterparty and with no really like risk of um, you know funds being seized or, or anything else that you that you deal with on a traditional kind of third party uh, settlement network or third party like like a Visa PayPal etc. Um, Satoshi solved that double spend problem and Lightning allowed for uh, allows for this instantaneous type settlement. So it's really exciting and a lot of 
really smart people and engineers uh, and founders are, are building on top of this thing. So, you know, we're going to see, you know, more countries adopt this as legal tender in the future. I think that's that's not even a real bold prediction. And, and you know, the medium of exchange type uh, side of Bitcoin is really going to utilize Lightning Network. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about uh, the Lightning Network uh, without all the hype, right, for the most part, uh, without tons of venture backing. Um, and uh, it's just been volunteers on the Internet kind of slowly but surely building uh, a peer-to-peer network of, um, you know, what at now is probably tens of thousands of people uh, running these uh, Lightning Network nodes uh, all throughout the uh, through the world and uh, really building a actual decentralized system uh, that has uh, instantaneous settlement, uh, nearly free uh, from a fee perspective, uh, and at the end of the day is superior to the legacy banking system, right? If I want to send any amount of money, uh, even if it is uh, using my credit card at uh, the coffee shop, et cetera, there is not cash finality. There is not uh, instantaneous settlement. There is not nearly free uh, you know, from a fee perspective. And so this is superior technology and people around the world are adopting it. And I think you see it in some of these metrics that you're pointing out here. Let's talk about uh, exchange flows. I know you've been looking a lot at that. You've got the 30 day uh, uh, kind of analysis of uh, exchange flows. What is this telling us? Yeah. So, um, you know, people try to get a little too fancy with exchange flows and use it as a top or a bottom indicator. And a lot of times it's not that simple, but uh, I think we can identify a few secular trends here. Um, one is that uh, exchange flows are, basically persistently negative uh, for the most part. So coins are coming off exchanges, except for uh, a few just type of, uh, you know, big events we saw uh, with the China exodus uh, and kind of that liquidation event that happened, that mass liquidation event in the May of 2021, saw a lot of coins flow on exchanges. We saw uh, following the Powell kind of pivot uh, and inflation's not transitory in November, we saw some coins come onto exchange, but really the trend since the start of 2020 has been coins are, are flowing out of exchanges by the hundreds of thousands uh, and just huge numbers. And so I think that trend is, is set to continue uh, and there will be, you know, bumps in the road. You know, there'll be coins coming on exchanges at certain times, maybe the next time all time high breaks. But the reality is uh, people are increasingly coming to realize that Bitcoin and the native kind of properties of this asset that allow you to self custody it. Uh, are really important. Uh, you know, talking about Trudeau and Canada earlier, I, I caught a little bit of you guys before I came on. Uh, you know, this this whole thing with COVID, a, a lot of people are realizing it's not about health, uh, and increasingly it's just about control. Uh, and so, you know, money that can't be seized, money that's not a database entry in someone else's database, where you know if your political you know views don't align with theirs, well, your money might not be yours. Um, so, Bitcoin in that sense is is more important than ever, and increasingly people are coming to realize that. So. You know, self-custody your coins, not your keys, not your coins. It's the story of Bitcoin. Yeah, and it's only going to get louder and more prominent, I think. Uh, we've got the illiquid supply shock ratio here. What is this telling us? Yeah, so shout out Will Clemente uh, came up with this one uh, in, in 2021. Uh, and, and on chain, what you can really see is it, it quantifies the supply side of things. Uh, and, and really this, this primes uh, or sets the stage for, for the demand side. So, so price runs when the marginal seller is exhausted. And what we see here is that just uh, the marginal seller or really just kind of this cohort of, of stackers uh, is, is taking over. And so just continuing to eat away at that free flow to supply, uh, diminishing that available, you know, 
Bitcoin to be sold on the market uh, every single day. And so a liquid supply, this, this supply shock ratio quantifying uh, the liquid supply relative to the liquid and highly liquid supply, uh, you know, don't have to get too much into the weeds with the definitions, but basically it's just showing, uh, you know, how much Bitcoin is being, is, is being held by strong hands uh, relative to that kind of that liquid supply. And so it's, it's as attractive as it's, as it's been since the start of 2020, surpassing its 2021 highs, uh, and so really what we're waiting for is this big demand shift. And I think we're starting to see it, um, not even from the inflation hedge narrative, this digital gold narrative, the central bank dilution narrative that we saw in, in 2020 and 2021, but now we're seeing more so the censorship resistance uh, kind of effect play uh, or start to play out. And so really interesting time in Bitcoin, uh, but the demand side really, what or, or the supply side, what this is showing is that uh, we're primed for, for a big move when that kind of demand shifts and comes in a big way. Yeah, it's pretty incredible to watch this. Um, speaking of kind of this illiquid uh, supply shock, uh, one of the big things that, uh, you know, we've heard everyone from Stanley Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones talk about uh, is this idea that Bitcoiners don't sell, right, for the most part. And the majority of them continue to hold for long periods of time. For those that don't know the story, I believe it was Paul Tudor Jones called Stanley Druckenmiller uh, back in 2018, uh, kind of beginning of 2019. He said, hey, do you want to hear a crazy stat? It was like 87% or, or some you know crazy high number of Bitcoiners who held Bitcoin when it was at 20,000, haven't sold even though it dropped all the way down to around $3,000. And of course, they then said, well, that's pretty interesting and, and uh, ended up going ahead and getting themselves and, and many others to, uh, to actually start to allocate to the asset class. Uh, you've got this uh, chart here that shows that 60% of circulating supply has been dormant for one plus year. Uh, how do you evaluate whether that's a, a good number, a bad number is it going higher is it going lower like how do you evaluate this yeah so i mean there's not too much like directional analysis that that you can apply here i think really it's just the story of like it's more so just kind of quantifying what the people like stan Druckenmiller and paul Tudor jones when they decide to allocate a big chunk to this asset class what they're seeing and it's that you know there's this cohort of people around the world of investors um maybe not even investors maybe just savers uh that come to realize the properties of bitcoin and say i want to hold as much of this as i can and so you're seeing like recently that the supply dormant for one year is, is hockey sticking up into the right. Um, and so you can kind of think of that as being bullish in itself. You know, that free float of supply available is, is becoming less and less. Uh, but really, it's just showing that, you know, up, down, sideways, there's people that understand that Bitcoin's the best money ever and they're they're you know, getting their fair share. And so, you know, proof of work, you got to, you got to put in uh, some sort of capital or you got to, you know, energy expenditure to acquire your fair share of this 21 million. So uh, yeah, I think that's just a story. And, and this, you know, one year dormant supply is a pretty interesting metric to look at over time. Yeah. And when you look at that number, how much of that is driven by uh, potentially lost coins or other, you know, types of assets that, uh, or, or other holders that might not just be, you know, strong holders that are never going to sell, but could be destroyed, lost or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think I've seen some pretty good estimates about, you know, two to three million coins lost. I mean, I would certainly say Satoshi's million-ish stack is is gone forever, uh, whether purposefully or not. Um, and so probably the the real, like, you know, total available supply is somewhere around 18 million. Uh, I think, I mean, 19 million coins are in circulation right now. Um, and so, you know, total, total supply available, I guess you could think of as like 15 million or so, but really, uh, if you're looking at a lot of these, like, you know, hodl metrics, liquid supply type stuff, I would say only probably about a few million coins are, are I guess, up for sale, if you want to call them. And, and really like 
you know, price set at the margin, it's, it's only a few hundred thousand coins that are deciding this, this daily price. The rest is just being hodled by people that have no interest in, in exchanging back for fiat currency because they understand the end game. Yeah. You've got this uh, statistic here that says $1.4 trillion in immutable value transfer so far in 2022. That is a massive number uh, and would put us on pace to destroy uh, MasterCard and a number of other payment systems from just a, uh, a value transfer standpoint. Uh, wh- what's your analysis on this? Yeah. So, I mean, I really could have just said, uh, you know, 1.426 trillion in change adjusted volume. But, you know, if we're, if we're just thinking about recent events, thinking about what's happening in Canada, uh, really, you know, freedom money rings. And so uh, immutable value transfer, like the value prop there, a lot of people in Western countries for the longest time said, you know, what's the point when I can just transfer money on, you know, ACH or Stripe or, you know, Venmo? Uh, what's the point of Bitcoin? It's, it's slow and efficient and all these other things. And then the reality is they say a wrong thing or attend a wrong protest and nope, all of a sudden your bank, your money that you thought you had isn't your money. Um, and so like, you know, it's kind of somewhat dystopian, but the reality is that Bitcoin and it, and its uh, you know value prop has has never been clear for a lot of people. And so uh, the reality is that you know this this monetary network and its properties aren't aren't you know duplicable anywhere else in the world. This proof of work, the kind of settlement assurances that come with this this protocol, um, don't exist in other cryptocurrencies, and they don't exist in the legacy system. And so you know this increasing trend towards overreach uh, by governments. And really, you know, tyrants is not something that that we want to see, but it's just the reality of how the world works and how it's, you know, where it's where we're going. And so, uh, you know, central bank digital currencies, a lot of this stuff, uh, it's really somewhat of a, you know, less less freedom for for all of us. And so, to have Bitcoin here, to have this freedom money, is something that you know can't be understated. And that's why we keep emphasizing it over and over. Got it. And then when you start to actually look at uh, at this last chart, the CPI year over year uh, versus the Fed funds uh, effective rate, obviously, uh, we've got tons of talk of inflation, of Fed policy decisions. Seven and a half percent is a friggin wild number. What, what's uh, what's the read? All right. So I'm going to read an excerpt from an IMF paper in 2011. Uh, and so just so people like kind of, you know, get some context to what, what we're dealing with here. So uh, this was published in 2011 by the IMF it says a subtle type of debt restructuring takes a form of financial repression. Financial repression includes direct lending to governments by captive domestic audiences, such as pension funds, explicit or implicit cap on interest rates, regulation of cross-border capital movements, and a generally tighter connection between government and banks. In a heavily regulated financial markets of the Bretton Woods system, several restrictions facilitated a sharp and rapid reduction in public debt to GDP ratios from 1940s to 1970s. Low nominal rates, no low nominal interest rates help reduce debt servicing costs while high incidence of negative real interest rates liquidate or erode the value of government debt. So what's happening? High inflation, low interest rates, domestic captive pension funds and all these uh, you know other sort of so, sorts of capital are you know sitting in bonds tens of trillions of dollars worth what's happening the, the the real value of that capital is eroding in real time so so what we can take from this well uh it's not so much you know a coincidence it's more so that they're following a playbook and if you're sitting in bonds if you're sitting in debt securities you're guaranteed to lose um so thankfully we have an escape valve uh, Christine Lagarde, the you know, chair of the ECB, said, you know, if there's an escape valve, they'll use it. And the reality is that Bitcoin uh, increasingly is becoming this escape valve for people. And not many people realize it. And a lot of people deny this fact that it's some sort of inflation hedge. But I wouldn't think of it as a you know, inflation hedge on the CPI reading on a Wednesday or Thursday morning. Uh, that's kind of missing the forest for the trees. 
the, rea- the reality is that digital gold, this absolutely scarce monetary asset that can't be censored, that can't be taken away from you, is this hedge against government tyranny, but also financial repression, uh, which is the only way out of this, this you know, unprecedented debt spiral that everywhere in the world seems to find themselves in. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a playbook than anything else. And I think, uh, you know, you, you'd be wise to have some Bitcoin in your portfolio. What's your read on uh, the Canadian uh, government, Bitcoin, freezing assets, the whole nine yards? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things to say. And I think, uh, you know, I've, I've definitely made my opinion kind of uh, loud and clear on, on Twitter. And I've had a lot of people, you know, uh, give me their, you know, or I guess like frown upon my take that it's not about health. And I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that it's, it's not about health. And it never really was. And so you're seeing, you know, places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, clamp down super hard on their citizens. Um, and it's, it's, it's scary. It's definitely scary. I mean, I live, you know, an hour from the Canadian border and probably won't go for a long time. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin is hope for these people and, you know, uh, freedom money rings. Uh, I guess that's all I have to say in regards to that. But I think uh, Trudeau and, and uh, a lot of the, those, you know, government cronies are on the wrong side of history. Joe, John, what questions you guys got? Uh, Dylan, what's up, man? I like the mustache. Keep that going. Don't let him, uh, him come after you. All right. Um, my question would just be around the supply side, uh, and the buyers, right? So I think we've seen, and we've talked about this multiple times of how retail continues to buy and just dollar cost average into this asset, uh, time over time again, but from the institutional side, like, what are you looking for there? And, and and like, I guess from like a bull case scenario, if we think if Bitcoin's going to go where we all think it's eventually going to go, like how much of that is institutional based versus just the retailers continuing to, to buy into this asset? Yeah. So, I mean, retail was definitely, um, you know, they were like here to Bitcoin almost a decade before a lot of this like institutional capital. Uh, and, and, you know, that ever growing base of retail buyers is, is still going strong. But I think the institutional capital that's, you know, moving, that's moving funds off of like, say the real yields uh, and looking like, or say like pensions, endowments, all these uh, other sort of funds, they're, they're trading off what's happening in legacy markets. Uh, and somewhat of a risk-off sentiment uh, and, and price action in, in equity markets and credit markets, uh, like we've covered in previous episodes, that definitely has an effect on, on their allocation and where they're moving capital. Um, so that's kind of why we're seeing, I think, some sort of consolidation for the time being. Um, you're seeing certainly some institutions or maybe uh, the ones that are a little more prudent uh, are saying, hey, we need to, we need to up our Bitcoin allocation uh, in times of uncertainty, because not only is there inflation risk, but there's credit risk everywhere in the fiat system. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, I think we've seen somewhat of a halted kind of uh, allocation from a lot of these these big money funds until uh, more like central banks kind of uh, go off their hawkish stance a little bit. So even though, infl- even though inflation is 7% and the, you know, Fed funds is still zero and the 10-year and the treasury is still at 2%, uh, yields are laughably still, you know, very negative uh, in real terms. But I think there'll they'll be a pivot. Uh, they can't taper a Ponzi, essentially. And so that's when, uh, you know, a lot of this institutional capital comes back in a big, big way. Dylan, Russia has obviously been in the news a lot lately, but recently they came out and we're talking about lower taxes for people using electricity for crypto mining. What is your sentiment about all of that? And kind of they now, I believe, in August of last year had around 11 percent of the Bitcoin mining in the world. What is your read around what's going on over there? Not trying to get political. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm by no means, a, a you know, a geopolitical analyst. I would just I would just say that Russia uh, you know, very uh, natural resource rich, uh, you know, they, they export a lot of energy, obviously. Um, and, you know, they've increasingly tried to 
basically get off the dollar system, uh, get off that kind of swift Fedwire system, uh, de-dollarize their reserves. They're holding uh, you know a lot less treasuries and a lot more gold. And so I think Bitcoin's a natural fit. Um, whether you know Putin straight up adopts it as as you know legal tender or currency, or they buy Bitcoin for the, for reserves, that's another story. But I think it it just it naturally makes sense. I, I think it would be you know a blunder of a move if they did something similar to what China did. In terms of you know just kicking all their miners out, it makes it, it makes almost no sense. And so I think it actually the game theory says they they embrace it. And whether they explicitly embrace it and come out as as you know proponents and supporters is a, is another story. Um, but you know it, it's a quite natural fit given that you know the natural resources in Russia and also just like the geopolitical environment and you know the history of, of U.S. sanctions and, and all of the like. So I think it's a natural fit, and we'll see where it goes. But the game theory says you know full go for for Putin and Russia with Bitcoin. Well said. Dylan, last question we have for you. Uh, you don't know this because it happened while we've been talking, but uh, Conoco Phillips, uh, which is a $100 billion uh, oil producer, uh, they've publicly just announced and admitted that they are actually mining Bitcoin uh, in the, uh, I think it's pronounced Bacon or uh, Bakken uh, kind of formation, uh, which is in uh, kind of central part of the United States. So we've got one of the largest oil producers uh, in the world that now is saying, yes, we are mining Bitcoin uh, within the borders of the United States. What's your general take on uh, on these energy companies doing this and, and uh, kind of now talking about it, it looks like? Gradually, then suddenly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all coming. They're all going to come. Uh, I mean, right now, the production cost of Bitcoin, I mean, it varies based on, you know, your cost of power and your uh, your rig cost. But, you know, a lot of these publicly traded miners are producing Bitcoin for $10,000 with a market price of 44000 So, uh, and a lot of like, uh, you know, so say like Great American Mining and a couple other of these uh, companies are just taking like waste natural gas in the in the Bakken where these guys, I guess, just said they're, they're mining Bitcoin and they have almost no marginal uh, marginal cost to this. It's, it's waste energy and they're mining Bitcoin with it. And so, uh, you know, Every oil and gas company uh, is going to is going to enter the space in a big, big way. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're still at the phase where it's a lot of the kind of early adopters. Um, but, you know, the just the financial incentives alone say they're all going to come. So, you know, gradually, then suddenly. Uh, and it's nice to see another one, another one of those dominoes fall. I completely agree with that. Um, last, uh, last, last question, uh, sentiment <laughs> check from you, uh, obviously with Bitcoin kind of going a little sideways here, uh, people seem to be a little bit quieter on the internet. What, what's your general take as to uh, where we are and kind of what to expect over the next couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think equities, uh, equities are still a big driver, uh, risk on risk off, uh, you know, what, what's happening, whether, you know, there's a deleveraging in the, in the legacy system or not. I'm watching credit markets quite closely. Uh, they still don't look too great. We covered that on the last show. Um, so I think that's kind of interim, you know, short-term risks. Um, but I mean, I came out and I said, uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, uh, glad I increased my Bitcoin allocation to 105%. So, I mean, I'm long and strong, <laughs> no, no wavering beliefs here. Uh, nothing's changed in that, in that sense. I love it. Joe, John, you guys got anything else? No, man, Dylan, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate you guys. All right. We appreciate you. Keep up the great work. See you next Tuesday. Yes. Peace. Later, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. 
Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.